Rich Church, Poor World, Episode 4. There's a common response among Christians when someone raises a concern over us not doing enough to help the poor or support missions. It goes something like this. That's so great you're passionate about that. Essentially, it's a patronizing dismissal. The need is looked at as something that individual can be encouraged to get involved with, but not something the whole church should put a large emphasis on. If we make a judgment based on the actions and budgets of most churches in America, we can assume that we believe our main focus should be on growing the local churches and building up the saints, or more accurately, pampering them. There is a tiny focus on missions and charity, but very little attention is paid to them other than Missions Week once a year and that small section in the bulletin that mentions a collection of clothes for the homeless once a month. What's most important is having a great Sunday morning worship and solid Bible teaching. This mentality seems to have made us like someone trying to take a rowboat across a lake with only one oar. Rather than getting where we're supposed to go, we're spinning in circles. The ore that represents building up the saints through the local church is vital, but without the ore of missions and charity, we're not advancing the kingdom of God, and it appears all our spinning has caused a leak in the boat. Now more people are jumping off than climbing in. Rather than dismissing those who express a concern over us not doing enough to support missions or help the poor, we should be asking ourselves as churches and individuals what scripture really says about our duty to the poor and those outside our borders. Does it align with scripture to say we should put a much larger emphasis on these things? Not, does it align with conservative politics? Not, does it align with what we were taught growing up? But does it align with scripture? Does God really want us to be caring for the poor and prioritizing missions? Let's take a closer look into these questions, starting with the Old Testament. As the people of Israel were getting ready to enter the promised land after their captivity in Egypt, the Lord had many special instructions for them. Right in the midst of these instructions, we catch a strong glimpse of God's compassion for outsiders and the poor. We also see a precedent set for how tithes and offerings were to be used. God tells the people in Deuteronomy 14 verses 28 through 29 the following, At the end of every third year, bring the entire tithe of that year's harvest and store it in the nearest town. Give it to the Levites, who will receive no allotment of land among you, as well as the foreigners living among you, the orphans and the widows in your towns, so they can eat and be satisfied. Then the Lord your God will bless you in all your work. These verses demonstrate God's primary intention for tithes. They were to support the Levites, who we can equate to people in full-time ministry. They were to help the foreigners, showing God's compassion for all people. And they were to provide for widows and orphans who could not care for themselves. These were the duties that God was giving His people. And now in our time, the church. There's estimated to be 153 million orphans worldwide. And how many churches in America do you see leading the way in addressing the needs of these children? We have the resources, but they are being directed elsewhere. James 1.29 tells us that pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress. Sounds a lot like what God wanted His people to do in Deuteronomy 14, doesn't it? An objective bystander would be left to assume that for American Christians, pure and genuine religion means going to church on Sunday, studying the Bible, and volunteering once a month to pass out bulletins. But God wasn't done instructing His people on how they were to act regarding the less fortunate. In Deuteronomy 15, verses 7 through 10, he continues, But if there are any poor Israelites in your towns when you arrive in the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards them. Instead, be generous and lend them whatever they need. Do not be mean-spirited and refuse someone a loan because the year for canceling debts is close at hand. If you refuse to make the loan and the needy person cries out to the Lord, you will be considered guilty of sin. Give generously to the poor, not grudgingly for the Lord your God will bless you in everything you do. Once again, we see God's command for His people to show compassion toward the poor and to share freely with them. 
we see further how seriously God takes these commands in saying that if the poor cry out to God, those who refuse to help them will be considered guilty of sin. Reflect on this for a moment. Isn't this starting to seem like a big deal to God? He commands us to be generous and share freely with the poor. To ignore this instruction is just pure disobedience, and disobedience of any kind equates to sin. James 4.17 reminds us, it is a sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. Now, what really makes our disobedience mind-blowing is our failure to believe what God tells us He will do if we obey Him in these instructions. What does God say in both Deuteronomy 14 and 15? He says that if we obey Him in these things, He will bless us in everything we do. That's a direct promise from God. God is a generous God. He's not stingy. We can't even fathom the blessings God will pour into the American church if we were to cease from our total self-indulgence and begin generously giving more of our resources to meet the material and spiritual needs of the world. Psalm 41, 1-2 reaffirms this promise. Oh, the joys of those who are kind to the poor. The Lord rescues them when they are in trouble. The Lord protects them and keeps them alive. He gives them prosperity in the land and rescues them from their enemies. The alternative to receiving God's blessing is to expect divine discipline. Ask the average Christian in America why the Lord destroyed Sodom, and they will tell you it was because of the city's perversion and immorality. However, we find the primary reason for its destruction in Ezekiel 16, 49, where God says, Sodom's sins were pride, gluttony, and laziness, while the poor and needy suffered outside her door. Yet again, we see an example of people living in excess while ignoring the critical needs of the impoverished around them, to the great displeasure of an almighty God. Yet again, we find that the ugly painting on the wall is really a mirror, and the hideous portrait is our reflection. As we continue examining the Old Testament, we see God's compassion for the helpless on display again and again. We also see the same theme repeated as to how He wants us to treat these people. Psalms 82, 3-4 says, Give justice to the poor and the orphan. Uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. Rescue the poor and the helpless. Deliver them from the grasp of evil people. Now, this doesn't align with our me-first or American conservative version of Christianity, where we are more concerned with our rights as Americans than God's kingdom, but it's what the Bible actually says. People want to blame God for all the suffering in the world, but the reality is God desperately wants us to relieve the suffering of the masses. As the vine, Jesus longs to extend his branches of shade and rest to everyone, but the design is that it be done through the church. And when we, as his branches, are chasing after the things of this world instead of abiding with full surrender in him, the work will not be accomplished. The call for us to attend to this work continues to ring throughout Scripture. Isaiah 1.17 says, Learn to do good, seek justice, help the oppressed, defend the cause of orphans, fight for the rights of widows. And in Isaiah 58.7, God repeats, Share your food with the hungry and give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them and do not hide from relatives who need help. We continue to be reminded of how seriously God views disobedience to these commands as we see how he rebukes the people of Israel in Jeremiah 5, 28-29, saying, They are fat and sleek, and there is no limit to their wicked deeds. They refuse to provide justice to orphans and deny the rights of the poor. Should I not punish them for this? Says the Lord. Should I not avenge myself against such a nation? Does a nation that is fat and sleek and ignoring the poor and needy remind you of anywhere else in the world today? God's character never changes, nor does his heart of compassion towards the widow and orphan. We should not be so foolish to think God is not greatly displeased with our country or the American church for our luxurious living while those starving for spiritual and physical food are suffering outside our door. But just how bad is our self-indulgence? 
A recent Barna Group survey found that 91% of Christians in America do not tithe a full 10% to the Lord's work. We are the richest people in the world, but we cannot find it within our means to honor God by giving Him our first fruits. Our selfishness reveals how little we actually know of God's character and highlights our neglect of the scriptures. In Malachi 3.6, God says, I am the Lord and I do not change. Before saying in verses 8-10, through 10, should people cheat God? Yet you have cheated me. But you ask, what do you mean? When did we ever cheat you? You have cheated me of the tithes and offerings due to me. You are under a curse, for your whole nation has been cheating me. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you will not be able to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. American Christians are guilty of cheating God to our own detriment. Now, there's no disputing that we must make a distinction between Old Covenant and New Covenant requirements, but why do you think God put the book of Malachi in the Bible? Was he just trying to fill space or did he want to reveal something to us about our own disobedience when it comes to financial giving? Think back to what the Lord said in Malachi 3.6. He said he doesn't change. Therefore, though we are living under a new covenant, we can be assured that God is just as displeased with our disobedience as he was with the Israelites. Of course, our disobedience always prevents us from experiencing God's best. We are promised that if we step out in faith and obey, we will receive a blessing so great we will not be able to take it in. Why don't we trust God when he promises us this? It's amazing how we trust him with our soul for eternity, but we just don't trust him with our money. Can you imagine the impact if every believer in the U.S. acted on this promise? We could support more missionaries and do more to help the poor than any time in church history. Furthermore, we can trust that God will in turn pour out his blessings on us. His richest blessings come in many different forms, but if a portion of them are financial, then we will be able to give even more towards advancing the kingdom of God, all while storing up rich treasures in heaven, where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal.